The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. In this episode, Larry Guthrie, CCIM Institute Director of Communications, is joined by Victor Kalanog, PhD, Head of Commercial Real Estate Economics for Moody's Analytics Reese, to break down second quarter research across all major commercial real estate market sectors. The two cover plenty of useful information to help CRE professionals navigate unprecedented challenges related to COVID-19. Hi, I'm Larry Guthrie, Director of Communications for CCIM Institute, and I'm here with Victor Kalanog, PhD, Head of Commercial Real Estate Economics for Moody's Analytics Reese, one of the premier sources of economic research regarding risk, performance, and financial modeling. Thank you for joining me today, Victor. Thanks for having me, Larry. Reese recently released a series of Q2 rent trend reports on industrial and office, retail, and apartment, and they also released a Q2 construction first glance report. So, you know, everyone is hungry for reliable data to have on tap to help with, you know, their analysis and valuations right now, especially in this new real estate landscape that we find ourselves in. You know, it's going to make all the difference. But as you know, the data is only half of it. You need to understand the story it's telling you. So I'm really excited to have you share Reese's findings and what it means for industry professionals and how they can use this information to be proactive in navigating these uncertain and somewhat volatile times. So let's just go down the property line. Um, Let's go with industrial first. It's been weathering the storm fairly well. Um, But with retail bankruptcies on the rise, do you see that changing? Uh, Actually, I do think, Larry, that industrial, especially when you're talking about the warehouse distribution space, is one of those sectors that will likely benefit both in the short term and over the long run from the disruptions that COVID-19 and this lockdown have really prompted. And the reason behind that is something that's actually not very new. You've got a lot of transition of business and commerce in general uh, onto online platforms. This has been pressuring retail brick and mortar properties as well as retail tenants to reinvent their business process, to shift more of their business online. But this has been happening for a good 20 years. In fact, if anything, whenever I cite the official numbers from the Department of Commerce about the proportion of e-commerce versus total retail sales, which was at 11.4% as of the end of 2019. I usually get quizzical looks from folks, Larry, because they're usually thinking, really, just 11.4%? I do much more of my shopping and purchasing online versus 11.4%. Uh, of course, that denominator includes things like gasoline sales and automobile sales. You can purchase Teslas online, but not much else in terms of the auto industry. So if you strip that away, number was closer to around 26, 27%. And because of the lockdown starting at or around April, okay, that number skyrocketed to close to 40% based on our latest estimates. Now, those aren't the official numbers just yet from the Department of Commerce. But if you put together some of their releases, this just means a ton of disruption for retail. So 
Let me end real quick and say, okay, so why does that necessarily benefit industrial? As it turns out, and this is a really interesting statistic, an online retailer needs about three times the amount of warehouse and distribution space that a typical retail brick and mortar retailer does. And why is that? Because number one, for a variety of reasons, when you've got an online retailer, you typically have a broader product line that just needs more space for stocking. Number two, if you're an online retailer, you often need to use that warehouse space to accommodate returns. And number three, remember, brick and mortar retailers use warehouses to ship well-organized pallets of goods to their storefronts, right? Online retailers typically need to ship individual products to their customers. So every time you click on buy now from Amazon or some other online retailer, Someone in a warehouse needs space to pack that. So for a variety of reasons, warehouse distribution in general is likely to weather the storm uh, pretty well. And over the long run, because I don't think we're seeing the end of this e-commerce disruption, benefit structurally from all this change that's happening. Yes. And, I, you know, I, I think we're seeing that already, right, with Amazon uh, in talks or purchasing, or have already uh, in the process of purchasing some of those empty anchor stores in malls. So it's it seems like that what you're saying is already starting to play out. So we'll see more of that happening. Is there anything in particular that, that you would say to investors uh, in the industrial space that they should be watching out for or any special considerations? Well, I do think that over the next six to 12 months, there will be some good investing opportunities if you wanted to enter the space. We are predicting anywhere from a 7 to 9% decline in industrial prices for 2020 alone. That might well be it if the recession is over and things stabilize by 2021. Uh, by comparison, we're predicting a bigger decline for retail, no surprise, close to 19%, right? But I don't think that warehouse distribution will escape this debacle unscathed because who will? This, this lockdown is really touching huge swaths of the economy based on one of our estimates. We shut down close to 45% of economic activity in the US, right? And so this is going to create some short-term disruptions. We are seeing it already in uh, reports from Prologis and the like in terms of a potential leasing slowdown. But again, in relative terms, take a look at you know, uh, near urban center, warehouse distribution centers. Uh, this is literally where the Prologises and the Blackstones of this world are playing right now. They're sensing the opportunity and there is that opportunity for investors as well in general. That's great information. So on to office. Um, there have been a few industry heavyweights, you know, Cushman and Wakefield, for example, who have produced some great resources for reopening the office space. But based on the rent trends reports that you have produced, what should we be aware of as we reopen our investing in these properties from both the buyer and the seller side? Well, I just... I think that there's a lot of articles right now speculating on the future of office space because this lockdown has, no, no surprise, really prompted us all to embrace the possibility of remote working. Uh, my take on it is that it will likely happen over time because the average office lease is about 9.1 years, right? So unless companies go bankrupt and leases get broken, 
even though there are a lot of pretty high-profile CEOs out there basically saying we're going to reevaluate our need for office space given that we've proven that we can all work from home, quote-unquote, this will likely happen over a period of anywhere from three to five years as companies settle on the appropriate amount of office space that they really need. Again, with disruption comes investing opportunities as well as risks. My take on the matter is, if you take a look at the general trend of reopening guidelines, if the risk from any future pandemics are considered in future plans for office space, there might be a de-densification in urban areas that might now be perceived as higher risk, but there might well be more space being leased up in options that are cheaper, but just across the river or just across the bridge, right? So I'm talking about suburban office space. If you do need more office space and now six feet across cubicles, when you reopen your office and help your employees stay safe, you might well need more space for employee, right? And so I do think that there will be this subtle, long-run reallocation on the margin, whether or not it's actually going to mean you know, the long run downfall of central business districts and downtowns, I'm a little skeptical about, but I do think that there will be opportunities for the folks who are waiting to jump into it. And do you think that that will also affect the rents that are in the current uh, CBD areas? Oh yeah, absolutely. Now is CBDs in general are trading anywhere from 20 to 40% above comparable suburban office market rates, right? Surprise, everyone wants to be in cities. Actually, that wasn't true before the mid-1990s. As you know, the U.S. went through an urban renaissance at or around that time. So CBDs have, quote-unquote, ruled the roost for the last 20, 25 years. That said, will the pendulum swing back to suburban office? Uh, I think that those net beneficiaries from any kind of outflow from CBDs will indeed be the suburban office space that are adjacent to or co-located near urban areas. So I'm kind of being nuanced here because we really need to be nuanced during these extremely confusing, complicating times. But I don't think there are a lot of companies who are going to relocate, say, from their original New York location, where uh, in general, it's still companies still occupy 195 square feet per employee to say North Dakota where densification is just 26 uh, square feet of office space per employee, right? There's a reason why businesses are located in certain places. And if they're going to move, there are going to be constraints to big moves. I don't think that prevents them from a move across the river, for example. So let's see how this plays out, Larry. But in terms of just rents in general, expect CBD rents to fall by close to twice that of suburban office wow. space rents. Yep. And, you know, again, everyone's going to take a hit, but we're talking anywhere from an 18% decline for CBDs and a, and a 9 to 10% decline for suburban areas. So talk about opportunities, right? So if you're Facebook, right, I do think now is the time to use any kind of bargaining power that you have to lease a big chunk of space in, say, midtown Manhattan, beside Penn Station, right? The power's in your hands right now because of all this sentiment about where office space is heading. That makes perfect sense. So on to, we're going to touch a little bit on retail, but uh, you know, retail, there's so much out there already on it. And I'm uh, really curious to hear what your research 
uh, has uncovered that might surprise people? Sure. I, I do think that in retail, we tend to get caught up in the bad news, right? But here's something that's fairly surprising. We didn't really encounter much of a change in occupancy for the retail subtype called neighborhood and community shopping centers, right? We're still at occupancy rates close to 90%. That might have risen by 20 to 30 bips since end 2019, which we all unfortunately now consider pre-COVID, right? Almost like BC and AD these days. Uh, and, and so one wonders, right, with all of the news about retail tenant bankruptcies, good for Brooks Brothers that they found a buyer a day or two ago, right? Uh, how come occupancies aren't moving that much in neighborhood and community shopping centers? Surprise, you've got these neighborhood and community shopping centers, mostly located in suburban areas, usually anchored by groceries and pharmacies. These were the same businesses that really were classified as essential and therefore really didn't shut down because of the pandemic. If anything, in March and April, they might have even received a short-term boost in demand because of, I don't know, your propensity and desire to stock up on toilet paper, right? And so I, I do think that even within retail, there are a world of have and have nots. If we talk about malls, which are unfortunately the bigger retail property type, anywhere from 750,000 to a million square feet, either enclosed or open air, well, there's where the distress is. You've got vacancies at 9.8%, which is the highest we've recorded it, over the last 20 years. And all of the news that you'll typically see in headlines will feature retail tenants that occupy mall space. So again, even in retail, a world of have and have nots. Hey, if you're Costco, you're BJ's, you're Sam's Club, you're probably killing it right now. You're probably hiring more people because of the increased demand, especially if you have a good online delivery system. Right, Larry? So I'll end it there. Again, I don't think it's surprising once you hear it, but once you take a look at the numbers, let me tell you, we were surprised. We were like, the second quarter, this was a, a, a record in terms of decline in economic activity, right? A 32.9% annualized decline. We haven't seen that ever in U.S. history. And retail occupancies holding steady, that was a bit of a surprise for me. But I think the underlying dynamics do explain it quite a bit. Are you expecting that trend to continue into Q3? And Q4. No, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, we're in the middle of uh, a really, really bad downturn and the recovery path is quite uncertain. And so if we are projecting anywhere from a five and a half to six and a half percent overall GDP decline for 2020, which is very much in line with other forecasts out there, say from the IMF, which is actually worsening their outlook, then we can't help but really predict quite a bit of distress across property types and subtypes. So in our official numbers, we are expecting retail vacancies, even for neighborhood and community property centers to rise above the historic record. We're going to be in the mid 11s by next year. We are expecting rents, for example, to crater by over 11% in 2020. Uh, that's almost twice the amount of rent declines relative to the 2008 to 2010 period. So that tells you something. But these are all economic forecasts, right, Larry? These are all our read of the tea leaves. Uh, asking and effective rents and occupancy rates have remained surprisingly stable 
through the second quarter, and we will see what happens in the third or fourth quarters if uh, the worst of our predictions do come true. I got to say, Larry, this is the first time in my career that I'm hoping that a year from now, you and I can do a similar podcast and you can bust my chops and say, wow, Victor, all of your dire predictions were wrong. I would love for that to happen. I've never been in this position in my career, but I think there's a lot of unprecedented things going on right now, Larry. Absolutely. I mean, it's uncharted territory for uh, pretty much everyone around this. Um, now, our chief economist, Casey Conway, who I know you know quite well, uh, you know, he's along that same uh, thought that maintains that retail is going to survive, but that evolution that we had projected in the sector over the next five years has been sped up quite a bit. Um and it's interesting also in some of the news that uh, we've seen, you know, uh, Shake Shack and their new uh, designs are uh, including so much drive through. We are hearing from big uh, grocery chains that they are looking to expand uh, their pickup area, which, you know, causes all kinds of issues around zoning. So uh, what does the industry need to prepare itself for what do they need to what do commercial real estate professionals need to kind of uh, up their skill level on so that they can best help and serve these clients around that Uh, that's a great question larry uh let me answer that in a somewhat circuitous way by telling you what generally holds real estate recoveries back right In general, when there are downturns, real estate performance metrics like rents and vacancies take more of a hit because of the fixed nature of the asset class that we serve, right? In other words, if you're selling Cheerios and prices began to drop, then you as the manufacturer of Cheerios could literally pull those units of Cheerios off the shelves. Uh, move down the supply curve, shall we say, as an economist might say, and stabilize prices fairly quickly, right? Well, you can't exactly take a mall or an office building off the market very easily because zoning, demolition, all of these things cost a lot when it comes to repurposing real estate assets. And so I do think that over time, the winners in this crisis will be the ones who can think of creative ways of repurposing real estate, not as a fixed asset, but as a service. So let me just clarify that, right? In any office building, in any hotel, there is always some form of underutilized or unutilized space, right? You sign a lease for 300,000 square feet, you you know, make room for a conference center and you make room for some areas, but really, How much space do you actually use on a day-by-day basis or over an annual aggregate, right? And so I do think that the more flexible uh, you can think of real estate space and creatively come up with solutions for your clients and or investors to monetize that kind of flexibility, that's how you win. And I'm talking about conversations that Georgetown is having right now with hotels around the DC area because they need more space for their, you know, socially distanced educational provision services, right? I'm talking about uh, office space uh, being repurposed again for schools that need to reopen sometime in the fall, except with more space and all sorts of different social 
distancing guidelines. So uh, I do think that we do have some history about this, right, Larry? If you take a if you take a look at industrial flex space, literally the name says it all, right? It's a little bit more flexible. You can use it for the life sciences. You can use it as an office building. You can use it for R and D. Granted, industrial warehouse distribution and typical buildings are also simpler builds, so you can repurpose it more easily. But again, the more flexible we think of real estate as a fixed asset, the more creative the solutions we can create out of that. That's where I think the future lies, given how quickly these evolutionary and indeed revolutionary forces are moving. Does that make sense, Larry? Absolutely. Now, do you? The, here's the critical piece, though. Are you finding that governments are being just as flexible, or more so than they would have before, to help accommodate that those kind of creative solutions, whether it be um, more receptive to zoning changes or what have you? Yeah, that's uh, you know, it's, it's the second time you brought up zoning, and it's actually a really, really important topic because even uh, ever since Euclidean zoning. You know, usual case, uh, Ohio versus Euclid, right? Uh, demarcated efficient uses of space from industrial to commercial to retail. This does, this has kind of contributed to what I was saying about the relative inflexibility of a real estate asset like land, right? And property in terms of being repurposed. So let's leave the theories on the side. What, what, who's going to get in your way if you try to tear down, even if you had the money to magically tear down a mall right now and build warehouse distribution space? Usually the local government and the municipality, right? Because they need to rezone that space, which is now being charged at a higher millage rate. They're literally getting more taxes because there's retail property built there as opposed to an industrial property, which tends to be taxed at much lower rates. So that is a big constraint, I believe, when it comes to this flexibility of real estate as a service that I had mentioned earlier. And I do think that this has to be a, a town by town, state by state conversation, because the front page news that you've already mentioned from last Monday, Amazon basically cooperating with Simon Property Group is literally way, a way to kind of skirt around this, right? They're not, they're still going to be paying retail property taxes because the mall's not going to be torn down, except they're going to use more of it as a distribution channel. So I, I, these creative solutions may mean, unfortunately, having to work creatively around inflexible rules. Does that make sense, Larry? Yes, very much so. You know, kind of when we're talking about uh, being flexible and, you know, it kind of segs beautifully into construction. Now, I know that your construction report doesn't take into account kind of those adaptive reuse, uh, kind of uh, those expenses. But the delays, of course, you know, with new construction, you know, that's pretty commonplace during a recession. But your report noted that the time to completion was delayed by approximately six months during uh, the Great Recession. But it also notes that this time around, it may be even worse. So what's different this time around um, in the industry to cause even more of a delay than the Great Recession? Um, and then there's a, another question that we'll get into around adaptive reuse right after that. Sure. Uh, the two things that make this recession unique is that number one, it's, it's policy driven as opposed to market driven, right? We made a choice because of the public health crisis to shut down parts of the economy 
for uh, sometimes a short period of time, sometimes a longer period. And we might shut down certain parts as well if this reinfection uh, dilemma keeps continuing, especially as schools reopen. And so, you know, I think that our estimate of construction delays being worse than 08, 09 is driven by that, that construction was literally classified as non-essential in some places like Boston. Texas just kept building, even though Austin wanted to stop, right? Again, you want to go property type by property type when you talk about construction delays and or cancellations, because really what we're looking at here is a tale of two worlds, again, for multifamily and warehouse distribution. I mentioned multifamily because pre-COVID, we were expecting over 300,000 market rate units to enter the market this year. That would have been an historic record for many sub-markets, right? Surprise, multifamily was the darling of commercial real estate investment in this last business cycle and where performance metrics were strong, that's where we tend to build. Uh, we are expecting what is now a 16% uh, reduction in that 300,000 plus headline number because of changes brought about by COVID. But let me surprise you with this, Larry. Do you know what's, what the number is for warehouse distribution? Our most updated figure for the second quarter relative to the end of 2019 or pre-COVID? By how much is warehouse distribution construction down? What do you think? Your benchmark is 60%. Come on, there's no right or wrong answer. I would not even hazard a guess in this current environment. <laughs> the, the answer is it's actually up. <laughs> it's actually wow. up by over 10% based on, once again, project level research where we call, you know, construction and development companies and ask, we've been tracking that this project broke ground. When do you think it's going to be completed? So all of these numbers I'm citing right now are based on project level research, particularly for the next 12 months. And for 2020, literally, your warehouse distribution subtype is bringing more product to market, right? I do think it is consistent with what we're seeing in terms of the revolutionary change brought about by COVID and e-commerce, uh, the relative quickness too of just uh, erecting a warehouse distribution space, you know, four walls, two to three floors, not that many windows, uh, ornate designs, reserve those for the office buildings with classical uh, with architects of a classical background, right? So because it's simpler too, you know, you can build one of these things within four to six months, right? And so to green light these things is relatively easier than say the 18 to 24 month runway you need to build a multifamily property, right? So it's just such an interesting dynamic right now because of what COVID has produced. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting to explore, you know, a lot of, uh, Experts are saying, you know, they're exploring this idea of adaptive reuse and and really pushing that this is going to uh, become more popular. You know, you're talking multifamily. We've got a lot of hotel space that's going to be coming vacant hotel space that's going to be coming online, and you know, uh, Amazon going into retail and having to adapt that space for industrial. What are your thoughts? What are you actually seeing? Do you think that that's going to hold true? It'll certainly keep the construction uh, folks quite busy, whether they're doing from scratch or adaptive reuse. But what exactly do you actually see happening in the market? And where do you see adaptive reuse headed? 
Yeah, I, I do think this is consistent with my uh, point earlier about the winners from this, really, uh, the folks who are focused on making sure that real estate is seen as a service in, in terms of flexibility, adapt, adaptive reuse literally falls into that bucket, particularly since building costs have gotten really high, right? So in other words, putting up a building from scratch right now will require pretty much that you charge class A rents because it won't justify your building costs. So the more flexible and creative you could be with adaptive reuse, hopefully keeping those costs down using existing structures, uh, the better of a business plate will be especially good given these relatively lean times. By the way, this is a new, right? Uh, almost all of self-storage in urban areas feature some form of adaptive reuse. Uh, you don't really build a self-storage separate building in dense urban areas. What you do is repurpose, say, the bottom three floors of an, off an existing office or apartment building, convert that if you're an LOC into a self-storage uh, unit, and then wait for a REIT to buy you up. And so <laughs> that's actually been happening in self-storage for at least the last five to eight years, which is why they're kind of dealing with a bit of supply overhang problem because adaptive reuse, aside from costing less, also moves much faster, right? And so, you know, the economics of efficiency and or lower costs really argue for a more critical eye towards the use of this strategy of adaptive reuse, given the many forces that are acting on us right now. Yes. And it kind of circling back to our original topic of rent, you know, you brought it up so uh, beautifully where that new construction would demand those higher rents where adaptive reuse is going to be your best friend to be able to pencil something out that can charge a rent that the market would bear. Right. Yeah. I mean, let, let me give you one quick entertaining statistic, Larry, of of the record number for many sub-markets and neighborhoods of multifamily properties that have been brought to market over the last 10 years, how many do you think are class A versus class B or C, especially if they're built from the ground up? Pretty much all, right? 95, 95% because it's all, the building costs are just so high that it doesn't make economic sense. Uh, and what ends up happening, of course, is the class A multifamily space has just gotten much more competitive, right? It's become a race for better amenities, the latest sparkling, uh, you know, kitchen countertops or, I don't know, partner up with a gym provider. Wow. Talking about businesses that are in limbo, talk about gyms and restaurants, right? So in any case, all of that is in the air right now because of this debacle. It's true. There's... Uh, I mean, we've covered so much ground uh, and, and kind of wrapping up our conversation here. If the, our listeners took away like one to, to three pieces of critical information that they could put to use right away, what do you think those would be? Well, number one, take a look at urban infill locations that are going to be in high demand for property types like warehouse distribution. That's a tactical move, right? And then if you back into higher level advice, I'd say, again, be creative about the adaptive reuse and the flexibility of real estate as an asset, as opposed to thinking about it as an office will always be an office, will always be 100% office. 
And then finally, guys, there's a lot of bad news out there. There is no shortage of bad news. I do not want to add to it. But in the midst of all this bad news, there's also a lot of opportunities. Back in April, the Wall Street Journal noted that you know almost a thousand funds were out there raising close to $300 billion in funds for all sorts of opportunity plays. So be on the lookout, be alert, sharpen your skills, try to skate to where the puck is going because that's really the game and that's how we'll be successful once we emerge from this crisis. These sage words and cannot thank you enough for uh, sharing those with me and sharing all those wonderful insights from the report. Uh, I look forward to seeing how the next six to 12 months play out and maybe reconnecting around some of this in the new year with you, Victor. Thanks for having me, Larry. And I do hope you can bust my chops in the next six to 12 months because there's more good news than bad. From your lips. Thank you, sir. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.